Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand with me. We're going to continue our series on stuck. How many of you have ever been stuck before? Well, there's some keys to get out of being stuck, right? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you love us, you care for us. Lord, speak to our hearts in a very special way today and let your word do its work in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here today. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. Then we're going to shift from the New Testament to the Old Testament. This is what I've learned. You can be stuck in the Old Testament, and you can be stuck in the New Testament. You can be stuck when you're young, you can be stuck when you're old. Verse uh, 2, John 5, now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew or Aramaic Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stern of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now, if you've been with us uh, through the series, last week we came up with some reasons and some observations about being stuck, and I want to go over them very quickly today in case you weren't here last week. Um, being stuck can result from the loss of momentum. Uh, most of us have uh, reached a a soft place or a place where there was a lot of mud, and we thought, well, if I can just get enough momentum, I can get through it. Secondly, we talked about we become stuck when we go off-road. We leave the firmness of the road or the pathway, and we can become stuck. We're stuck when we sometimes uh, look at things wrong, and we need a change of perspective in our life. And getting unstuck requires letting go of what got us bound or stuck in the first place. And many times we feel stuck, but God is just sheltering us for the next move in our life. He's positioning us for another move. Now, when I thought about being stuck, my mind went to this this week, and I think many of you have had this happen. If you've ever helped someone get unstuck, you went to the back of their truck or their car, you gave them a push, uh, you very rarely get them unstuck without getting mud on yourself. Because as they are spinning their tires, guess what's happening? They're slinging mud on you. Now, I don't know how this may apply to you today, but I'm just saying when you help somebody get unstuck, you may get a little muddy yourself. Um, you know, there's an old saying, you know, you don't want to get down and wallow in the mud with the pig. The pig likes it. And sometimes when you're trying to get somebody unstuck, you can come back to really affect you. So here's the scene, John chapter 5, uh, great multitudes of invalids, people who are sick, uh, blind, lame, paralyzed, other various sicknesses, I'm sure. They're waiting. They're there tearing, waiting for the troubling of the water. Now this is a very mysterious, in some way, uh, scene. 
they're waiting for a miracle. And at certain times, an angel would come down and trouble the water and stir up the water, but no one knew when. And these people are there at the discretion of the timing of the angel. And whoever stepped in first was made well. Now, I would assume there's a lot of jockeying for position and uh, people there and not knowing when the time would be. So this is the scene. The place is a pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. Now, the word Bethesda means the house of mercy. And there are porches, or we would say colonnades around this. And a colonnade is a porch with several columns holding up the roof. And it would be a place of shade and shelter. And it would be around the pool. So the pool obviously seemed to be open, but the colonnades would surround it. Um, it's located by the Sheep Gate. Now, the Sheep Gate is also referenced in the Old Testament. And when the city of Jerusalem was torn down and the temple destroyed in the time of Nehemiah's going back to rebuild the city and the walls, the priest rebuilt the Sheep Gate. How much better than the ministry working on the Sheep Gate, right? Because we're here to help and encourage the sheep. And so this is the Sheep Gate. The pool is there located by the Sheep Gate. And there are five porches or five colonnades around it. Now here is the certain man. So we have the scene, we have the place, and here's the man. He has an infirmity. And this physical condition has continued in his life for 38 years. Now, we infer from the passage the way it's written, he's been here for a long, long time. We don't know if he's been here for the entire 38 years, but it is inferred that he's been here for a long, long time. Now, 38 years is a long time to be in a condition. 38 years is a long time in being stuck. Realizing in those days there's no orthopedic surgeons, there's no prosthetics, there, there's no miracle of science, and they're very dependent upon what God can do in their own personal life. How many of you know we're still dependent on what God can do in our own personal life? So that's the scene, that's the place, that's the certain man. Now Jesus comes up uh, upon this site, and there are multitudes of people. So I went back and researched the word multitude, and let me tell you what it means in the Aramaic and the Greek. It means multitude. It means there's a whole lot of people there. And it, it, it's not, you know, dumbing it down to just 50 or 60 when it says multitude. I think this is the healing center, if you will, uh, where people are being brought by probably the hundreds and the hundreds. So Jesus comes up on the scene, and for some reason, he focuses on the one person here. Now, I want to get you back to the scripture here, and there's three things that Jesus does. Number one, he saw. Number two, he knew. And number three, he asked. So I want you to say that with me. He saw, he knew, he asked. So this is not some type of Jesus being revealed to something. How many of you know he already knows? So I thought about my own personal life. How many of you are glad that Jesus sees your condition? And not only does he see your condition, he knows your condition. He knows the background of your condition. There's a lot of people who see you, but they assume wrong things about you. They don't know your story. They don't know your situation. They don't know what you've been through. They don't know all the things that have been orchestrated around the condition. But Jesus saw, he knew, and then he asked. 
Now, I want you to see this question that Jesus asked, and it seems like a kind of a dumb moment because here is a whole multitude of people who have various diseases, infirmities, blind, uh, paralyzed, lame. I mean, there's so many things there. Verse 7, here's the question. Do you want to be made whole? Does that seem like it's a, a given here? Do you want to be made whole? Now, here's the answer given by the man back in verse 7 to Jesus when he saw he knew and he asked. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Let me ask you a question here. What should have been the answer of this man to the question that Jesus asked? Do you want to be made whole? The obvious answer is yes. There's no yes here. There's no yes here. It is the response in verse 7 that the man gives. Now, I think when the Lord asks us a question, the obvious is he already knows the answer before we ask it. I think that's very obvious here. So do you want to be made whole? There's no yes that comes out. So let me kind of dig a little deeper, and I've been thinking about this all week. It almost seems like this person has a victim mentality. It's not my fault. I'm a victim of circumstance. I could get better. I would get better if, now no, notice in the answer, this is the if, if someone would put me in the pool and if people didn't get in my way before I got there. So this victim mentality, I think, has had this guy stuck so how do we get out of a stuck situation and move from getting stuck and stepping out of stuck when we are, when we are stuck? So I just want to give you uh, several things this morning that I think will help us all. Number one, we have to take ownership of our situation. We have to take ownership of our situation. So this guy doesn't say yes. He said if someone else would put me in the pool, if someone else wouldn't get in my way, if someone else didn't get in before me. So it shifted from him to someone else. So we have to take ownership of our personal situations. Michelle Reese asked this question, and I thought it was a, a very good question. Have you ever been told, or have you told yourself these phrases? And I want to give them to you this morning. My entire family is overweight, it's in my genes, and this is just the way I am. My boss hates me, so I'll never get the promotion. I don't have time. I work, I have kids, I have family needs, I have things and errands to run. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too rainy, it's too windy to do whatever I need to do to exercise. Besides, I have no energy left when I get home from work. I'm too old to change careers. Employers only want younger and smarter people than me. I'm too old to contribute. I'm too old to be productive. I'll never find a partner because all the good ones are already taken. I can't afford it. This is a horrible economic climate. I'm over 40 and I can't lose weight because of my hormones, so I'll just quit trying. The traffic's always bad on the way to work. That's why I'm always late. 
I can't have healthy dinners because uh, the family won't eat what I cook. Or uh, we could say I'm too busy to be involved. No one really cares about me. Uh, things just don't work out for me. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I'm sure that uh, many people have shared those lines or those phrases and maybe even some of us today. So every one of those that I just read is an indication that I'm not personally taking ownership for my situation. So it's always something else, a circumstance or someone else. Now, now notice this in John chapter 5. Jesus talks to him, but him is talking about them. Now, I want you to kind of go with this line here. Jesus talks to him, and now him is talking about them. Now, what's the them? No one of them will put me in the pool, and them are getting in the pool before me. So Jesus is referring personally to him, but he takes the conversation to them. You with me on that? So the him goes to them. There seems to be a deflection here of personal ownership from this guy. There's the blaming of the situation, and it's weakening the ability for this guy to move forward because Jesus is saying, I'm talking to him, but the him is always going to the them. It becomes a self-delusion, and it weakens our position to get unstuck and move forward. So I think it's very uh, obvious here, this guy is deflecting personal ownership. Now here's the second thing, we have to move from reasons to results. Say that with me. Reasons to results. Now let's all say it together. Reasons to results. There are reasons we're stuck. There are reasons we don't move forward. There are reasons that we get into situations. This is why I got stuck. I was in a bad relationship. I was in a bad marriage. My parents didn't treat me right. I was abused. I uh, was raised in poverty. I have some economic uh, uh, uncertainties. I have an ethnicity or a race that is sometimes put in the back. I've had some losses. I had some death. I have some grief, and, and I'm mourning those. And all those can be true. They can be true. They're reasons. But reasons will hold us back if we don't move to results because everybody's got reasons. And if we're not careful, our reasons become a crutch to our not moving out or moving forward of our position. I, I've, I found this out for every person here. No one gets a pass in life. I mean, you're going to be heard. You're going to say, well, you know, my, my dad was this and my mother was this and there was this addiction problem and, and I had trouble in school and I have dyslexia and, and you know, I, I have, uh, you know, ADD. When Aaron was in high school, and we kind of noticed this, um, when I drive with Aaron, uh, he's better now, but when I would drive with Aaron, it would make me so nervous because he's always multitasking when he drives. Um, you know, I'm, I'm riding in the car with him, he's playing with the radio, he's talking, there's a squirrel. You know what I mean? Does anybody have somebody like that in their family? And I'm thinking, please watch the road. Um, even the counselor in school when he was in high school said, Aaron, I think you know, I can get you a scholarship to college 
on, you know, ADD. And he said, uh, no, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to be tagged with that line, which is fine. That was his choice. But, but sometimes we are so distracted because of the reason that we get locked in the reason and we never move to the results. So we have to uh, really be careful that we don't get into that trap. Now, here's another thing here that I think we need to discuss about being stuck. We have to understand the power of proximity. We have to understand the power of proximity. So if you want to uh, jot that down, I think it would be advantageous for you. So here's the question. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you rolling with? Um, who are you associating with? So what kind of proximity is this man in? And I think the answer is very obvious. Everybody around that pool has a condition. Everyone at the pool has an infirmity, a lameness, a blindness. Everyone at the pool has a problem. Listen, everybody's got problems. Nobody is free of problems. But if you're the smartest person in the room, you need a new room. If you hang around people who are stuck, guess what? You're more likely to get stuck. You see, stuck people should not be hanging around with stuck people. I know that's powerful, but I'm just saying... We can get so comfortable in our stuck position, then we feel better when we're around other people in a stuck condition because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And sometimes we can really be upset with people who are trying to get us out of that position because we want to be comfortable in that position. So we have to understand the power of proximity. And we can even become angry with people when they're trying to push us forward or push us out of that malaise or push us out of that depression or push us out of that grief. And I'm not saying these things aren't reasons and they're not real, but if you stay in the proximity of a bad place, then that proximity begins to affect you and it affects me. How many of you understand what I'm saying here? So there is an enabling likeness in life. An enabling likeness in life. Now, here's another one. We need to take action in spite of our feelings. We need to take action in spite of our feelings. Now, I want you to look back here in John chapter 5, because in verse 8, Jesus says to this man, now he asks him a question, then he makes a statement. The first is what? Do you want to be made whole? And the answer was not yes. The answer was this happened and this happened and they get before me, no one helps me in. So when I say the, <laughs> the power of proximity and also we need to take action. If I had been laying there for the full amount of time, let's say it was 38 years, we don't know that. Let's say it was 20 years. Let's say it was 10 years, five years, or one year. If I had been lying there that long, now please follow along with me. If I had been lying there that long, and I knew that when the angel came and stirred the water, I had to be close to the pool, 
then I would be jockeying for position in that time. Anybody else here would have been jockeying for position? You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, this guy's lame. I would have rolled close. You say, well, I don't want to be called a holy roller. Honey, I'd rather roll in than not get in. I would have done something to have some kind of proximity to where the edge of the pool was. And you say, well, uh, Pastor, I'm sure everybody's doing that. Well, maybe so, but still, you have to take action. Now, you have to take action in spite of your feelings. So this is verse 8, and Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So, I don't know until that day, and I'm sure this is the case, that the guy ever believed that he could walk again, but evidently he thought he might walk again, or you would never be at the pool, right? Because there's a possibility I might walk again. There's the, the, the faint hope I might walk again. I, I might position myself close enough to get close enough to get into the pool. You know, I want to walk again, but... You have certain feelings. I mean, feelings of discouragement, feelings of doubt. I mean, all those things are real. And sometimes you got to put your feelings aside and say, I'm going to take action in spite of how I feel. I'm going to guarantee you every person here has had some bad feelings. Now, don't, don't look at anybody. Don't raise your hand and don't nod. This is a safe zone right now. Everyone's had feelings about marriage, good and bad. I love you, but right now I don't like you very much. Or your mind wonders, or, or you have feelings of retaliation, or you have feelings of, of hurt, or feelings of pain, and everybody's got feelings. But sometimes you have to move in action in spite of your feelings. You do what you do because it's the thing to do no matter how you feel, right? I, I may not feel that this may work. I, I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like going to work. Well, let, let, let me tell you, honey, despite what you're feeling, just do what you need to do. I mean, try this out on your job. Well, I just didn't feel like coming today. Try that about a week or two or three. You'll have different feelings after that week. Well, you know, I don't feel like making love. I don't feel like cuddling. I don't feel like, you know, showing respect. I don't feel this. Listen, you and I have to do what we need to do in spite of our feelings. We're not walking by feelings. We're walking by faith. And so, therefore, we have to take action. Take up your bed and walk. So we have to begin to do something positive whether we feel like it or not. I feel like I should lose weight. I, I feel like I should exercise. But until I take action, none of those things positive will happen. Um, am I just talking to myself here? I mean, I feel really alone right now in this moment. You and I have to take action. And guess what the Lord's calling this guy to do? 
let's do, some, let's do something positive here. It's time for you to take action. Now, here's something that maybe it slips in the passage, but you know what this guy's doing? He's taking action on the Word of God. You say, well, what do you mean? When Jesus speaks, that's the Word of God. When he speaks, that's the Word of God. So you, you may have good feelings about the Word, maybe doubt feelings about the Word, or maybe you don't have any feelings about the Word. Let me tell you something. The Word works not because of our feelings. The Word works because of our faith. And we have to take action on the Word of God. And when Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. Now, now here is the, kind of the juxtapose, or, or here's the difference here. Remember the first uh, thing Jesus said, do you want to be made whole? He doesn't say yes. Here's the next line. Take up your bed and walk. Now the guy actually responds. He's not asking him for an answer. He's asking him for an action. So sometimes we give words. When God says, I don't want any more words, now I want what? Action. I want you to do something here. Take up your bed and walk. And at once, immediately, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walk. So there was some action that's taken. So now this guy who's been in this condition for 38 years and some of us here have been in a bad place, stuck for a long time, and you get so discouraged I, I'm never going to get out of this. Listen, here is an actual account of someone who was in a bad place for 38 years and now he's out. He's out. So whether it's one day, one week, one year, or 38 years, God can get you unstuck. Hallelujah. Now let's shift gears. The guy stuck in the New Testament. Here is a major prophet stuck in the Old Testament. His name is Elijah. Now in 1 Kings chapter 19, we have it recorded, verse 4. Let me read this passage. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So let's have some background here. Remember the drought? Three, three and a half years. Elijah's the prophet who announced the drought to King Ahab. The drought is broken. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Mount Carmel. Great miracle. Signs, wonders, miracles, right? He builds the altar. God answers by fire. The, the rain comes down. And it's a great prophetic day in his life. Really one of the greatest prophetic days he ever has. The 850 false prophets of Baal and the groves are killed. And the people now are saying, Jehovah's God. But in chapter 19, Jezebel puts a contract out on Elijah. Because when Ahab gets home after that Mount Carmel experience, she says, and this is Mike 1 and 1, Honey, how did it go today? And Ahab said, not so good. Because Elijah had the 850 false prophets that you love all killed. And then, Ahab, and, and then uh, Jezebel says to Ahab, then tomorrow he's going to be like the 850 prophets. I'm going to have him killed. So she puts a contract out on his life. Um, I, I remember another minister that I heard speak years ago, and he he said that uh, they had a campaign to really reach some really tough places in their community, in their city. 
And he said, we went to some of the areas that was high crime, drugs, prostitution. And we began to try to rescue some of those people. Some of the girls that was locked into prostitution and the people who were selling drugs. And he said, we found out very quickly that that is controlled by organized crime and cartels. And they put a contract out on my life because we were trying to reach some of those people in those areas and it was costing them money. And it got back to me that they had said they were going to kill me in August of the year that uh, we were doing this. And he said, I was never so close to the Lord in August than any other August that I was ever in. <laughs> but can you imagine somebody putting a contract out in your life? And this is where Elijah is. So that's why he runs. So he, he leaves by himself to this isolated place, and he makes some mistakes that leads him to become stuck. So I want to just give you a few things here that was really not wise on his part. The first one is this. He ran from the situation instead of facing it. He ran from the situation instead of facing it. Sometimes in our life, we have the propensity to run instead of turning and facing the difficulties that we face, the challenges. The second mistake I believe that he made is he, he isolated himself from other people. The Bible says he went by himself. He, he did have a confidant. Back then, they, they would have a servant or someone who would go with them. And he left that person there and he went by himself. It's never good to be isolated. It is not good for man to be alone. So he isolated himself. He's also physically spent. He's physically spent. That's why the good Lord gave us the Sabbath. He said sometimes we just need to rest. He becomes despondent, depressed. Maybe it's burnout. I've had some people push back and said, well, Elijah would never be depressed or despondent. Honey, let me tell you something. When you sit down under a, under a tree and say, I want to die, you're not having a good day. You're not having a good day. So even great people, even spiritual people have bad days. You're not always on the mountain. Sometimes you're in the valley. You're not always up there in the ozone spiritually, sometimes you're, you're way under that position. And so he is despondent and depressed. And lastly, he's playing a comparison game. I'm no better than my father's. You've heard me say multiple times, whenever I compare myself to other people, I seem to always lose. They're always smarter than me, better looking than me have all kinds of things better than me. Let me tell you, comparisons are odious. You never lose when you compare. God made you an original, don't die a copy. There's only one you, don't compare yourself to everybody else. Uh, you don't look like them, you can't preach like them, you, you can't work like them, what, whatever they're doing. Listen, God's not asking you to be them, he's asking you to be you. So there's this comparison game that he gets into. So. I think there's some solutions we see from this because now Elijah is stuck in a bad situation. He's wanting to die. 
He's wanting to be away from everybody, and he's not moving forward. So here are God's solutions found in this chapter, four things that he does and allows to happen to Elijah that gets him up from this position. Number one, he gives him rest and refreshment. Say that with me, rest and refreshment. One of the things that I am very guilty of is feeling guilty of not doing something all the time. I'm confessing here. Uh, If I take a day off and do nothing, sometimes that drives me crazy. But you know what? It's okay. And I have tried to learn that. So God gives him rest and refreshment. Look at verse 5. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the first time we have ever record of an angel food cake right here. So the angel came and baked him a cake, brought water, and he says, you need to get up and you need to eat and drink. Because let me tell you what depression, despondency does. Sometimes it gets you in a bad place, and now God is saying, I need to get Elijah out of this place that he's in. So he's bringing him rest and refreshment. And he allowed him to eat and drink and to go back to rest. And then the second time he did the same thing. Here's the second thing he did. God has Elijah to question his position. He has Elijah to question his position. Look at verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? Say that with me. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now take Elijah's name out, put your name in, put my name in, and this is something that we have to question ourselves. What in the world am I doing here? I'm stuck. What in the world am I doing here? So he has him question that position. Here's the third thing he does. He adjusts Elijah's perception. If we're usually stuck in a bad place, our perception usually is not clear. We have no clarity of how we're seeing things. Now, let me just tell you why I'm saying that. In verse 18, God responds to Elijah's perception. I and I alone am the the only one left serving you. I'm the only one, God, that is holy. I'm the only one doing anything in the church. I'm the only one praying. I'm the only one in my family trying to go forward. I'm the only one trying to do good. I'm the only one positive. I'm the only one left. Everybody's forsaken you, God. And I and I alone am the only one left. Bad perspective. And now God is going to correct his perspective. He's going to give him a check up from the neck up. Look at verse 18. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
So this is what Elijah's thinking. The whole country has gone after this idol and this false god Baal. Now understand, behind every false god and idol and false deity is a demon. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. So these are not inconsequential um, things that, you know, makes no difference. Let me tell you, there's a real devil in this world who's working behind the scenes, and I think you feel it, and I feel it right now in the condition that we're in. I have a perspective of what's going on in America, but I also know behind my perspective and what's going on, there are evil forces at work. It's beyond political. It's beyond national. It is spiritual. Let me say that again. It is spiritual. And so we may have a perception here. Now God is fixing to change Elijah's perception. He says, I know this is what you think, and this is what you see, and this is what you feel, but what you see, think, and feel is not reality. I have other people, 7,000, that are not worshiping Baal, and I have them reserved. They are my people. You know what that's called in the Bible? A remnant. When you and I watch the news and we think the world's going to hell in a handbasket, there are people of God that are still serving Almighty God. Hallelujah. Sometimes we gather here and say, well, where are they? Don't we? And even people that should be here, we say, where are they? God knows. God sometimes has to change our perception. And here's the last one. This is how Elijah gets unstuck, God puts him back to work and re-engages him. He puts him back to work and re-engages him. Look at verse number 15. How many of you love the Word of God? I've read the Word of God for years and years and years and years. And I want to tell you, in the Word are principles for us to live by every day. In verse 15, he says, go, return on your way. What does that mean, return on your way? You've lost your way. You're you're sidetracked. You're you're off-road, Elijah. You're at a place that I understand, and here's the reasons, but you've got to move beyond the reasons. You've got to get some results here. So he says, Elijah, I want to put you back to work. And one of the things he does in putting him back to work, because if you're the prophet of God, this is what you do. Prophets anoint kings, right? That's what Samuel did, and that, that, that's what the, the prophets of old did. And So we, we have this horrible king, Ahab, that is corrupted, controlled by his wife, Jezebel, who was a harlot or a temple prostitute from... Uh, the Zidonians, this country up north, Baal worshipers. And now the Lord is saying to Elijah, you need to get back to what I called you to do. I didn't call you to sit under a tree. I didn't call you to be in the darkness of a cave. I didn't call you to be despondent, depressed, have a sorry outlook on life. I called you to do something here for the kingdom of God. I called you to anoint kings and anoint prophets. And that's exactly what God said that he needed to do. He said, you need to go anoint Jehu. You need to go anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your stead. So get back on your way. Look at verse 15. 
Return to your way. Matt and Mary gave me an article. And as I read the article, it's the account of an indigenous Alaskan woman by the name of Carol Sepalu. Carol, when she was 16 years old, became very depressed, despondent, and took her father's hunting rifle and put it up in her face and pulled the trigger and blew part of her face off. But she survived. Through multiple surgeries, through a lot of the doctor's care, even though her surgeries were very serious and her scars were very serious, she survived. Today, she breathes through a trach tube in her throat. She has to wear a mask over that. And also, she wears a mask over part of her face to cover up the, cover up the disfigurement of her face. After that, she gained a lot of weight, went up to 233 pounds. And then she decided, I'm going to try to get unstuck. So Carol decided she was going to start running. Breathing through a trek, a, a, a trek tube, this tracheotomy, 233 pounds, she started running. I can imagine the first day she didn't run very far. Trying to get the air through that trach tube in her throat, covered with a mask, 233 pounds. But guess what? She kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Today, she runs races from 60 to 70 miles. And she said, this is the reason I run. I want to give my people hope. I want to show them that there's hope. You don't have to stay in the same condition you're in. I mean, you know, we don't have to stay in the condition that we're in. And there's been some really good people that have just gotten stuck. It doesn't mean we're horrible people. It doesn't mean we're bad people. It just means we're stuck people. But Jesus comes along our way, and he says this, and let me paraphrase. Do you want to get unstuck? Do you want to be made whole? And the short answer and the right answer is just yes. But sometimes we say, well, it's that person's fault or this person's fault, or if I just had someone to help me, if I could just not have those people in my way, then I would be better off. And those all may be true, but I have to take some personal responsibility for my own life. And the good news is, Whenever we make one step toward God, he's already started moving toward us before we ever started moving to him. Now let me end with this. The lame man in John chapter 5 didn't make the first move to Jesus. How many of you know Jesus made the first move to him? Do you want to be made whole? And guess what? He left that place whole. Stand with me this morning. We are so thankful you joined us today. 
We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you are encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and hope changes everything.